This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Susan, you know, we all carry around different stressors, some big and some small. And sometimes they all tend to hit you at once on the same day. Yeah, like today. (laughs) It's not been a great day. More on that later on the show. But we all carry around these stressors, and keeping them bottled up can affect us negatively. But therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Therapy is helpful for learning positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself and isn't just for those who experience major trauma. It's also for those who've experienced a lot of bad things happening on one day. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash proof today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash proof. If you're listening to this show, then I'm going to guess you're a fan of true crime podcasts. So in the mornings, grab your favorite mug and pour yourself a dose of spine-tingling true crime every a.m. with Morning Cup of Murder. It's a short daily show that's the perfect podcast to incorporate into your morning routine. In less than 15 minutes, you'll hear about a true crime that took place on today's date in history. Each day's dark history lesson will kickstart your morning with intriguing tales of murder, abduction, serial killers, cults, and more. So pour yourself a piping hot cup of murder every single morning with Morning Cup of Murder. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Two weeks before Brian Bowling was shot and killed, his friends Lee Clark and Kane Story stole a safe from Kane's father. Neither Lee nor Kane were ever convicted in connection with the theft. The charges weren't pursued. And anyway, as juveniles without a prior record, it's unlikely that they'd have faced any serious criminal punishment. But the consequences of Lee's decision to steal that safe turned out to be far greater than he could have known at the time. In fact, he's still living with those consequences today. I stole that safe and I, I owned up that, that part. I mean, that's, that was my mistake. And I got to live with that. I, I can't never make it a change story. That's a regret I've lived with all these years in prison. He died, and here I am that stole all this man's money that he was saving up his whole life. Can't pay a dead man back. Can't make stuff right with a dead man. And I live with those regrets. And a lot of regrets I live with, too, is the fact that I think to myself sometimes that I never stole that safe. I don't think Kane would ever have that gun on him. I don't think Brian Bowling would be dead right now. Hi, my name is Susan Simpson. I'm an attorney and podcaster, and previously I hosted the Undisclosed podcast. Hi, I'm Jacinda Davis, and I'm a true crime TV producer. Last year, Susan and I decided to team up and reinvestigate the murder of Brian Bowling. Along with Kevin Fitzpatrick, president of Red Marble Media, we decided to launch Proof. You can listen to Proof like you would any podcast, and you can follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com.
It was late on a cold evening in October when Floyd County Police Officer Mark Corbin got the call from dispatch. A 15-year-old boy had been shot at a trailer in Silver Creek. I remember being close by. Uh, it didn't take me too awful long to get there. I mean, it was a fatal wound, but he wasn't, he wasn't dead at the time. Do you recall his bedroom or seeing him, like where he was? Mm -hmm. He was in the bedroom, and I remember it being a small bedroom and a trailer. Are you interested in seeing the photos? I'll look at them. Yeah. I, I remember it, though. Oh, you do? Okay. Well, it's, it's just, it's been controversial. What do you mean? Well, they still want to say it's a Russian roulette. I guess it's whatever size you want to believe. Officer Corbin told us he's worked a lot of suicides over the years. But that night at the Bowling's trailer, something felt off to him. When's the first time you recall wondering, like, wait, was this really a, a suicide? It's just a feeling you get. Uh, just, uh, it just didn't seem like a suicide. So you get there and just something's not adding just up. Just don't add up. As a patrol officer, Corbin's only job was to secure the scene. His name appears on a chain of custody form showing that he collected a 38 revolver from Brian's bedroom and gave it to the case officer, Sergeant Dallas Battle, when he arrived at the trailer. It seems like I recall an empty shell in the cylinder in front of the firing pin at the time. It seems like, because if you're going to make it look like Russian roulette, it can't have, it can't have ammunition in all cylinders. Yeah, yeah, bad game to play. Um, so you do remember the empty shell in the... It seems like I do. But I remember Dallas getting there. I remember Dallas was there before I left. The casing went mi like missing, so we're trying to figure out where that might have gone to. If there had only been an empty casing in the revolver when Officer Corbin recovered it, that would have been consistent with a game of Russian roulette gone wrong. If there had been live rounds still loaded in the revolver, then, well, either Brian and Kane had gotten the rules to Russian roulette very, very wrong, or it hadn't been Russian roulette at all. Unfortunately, there are no records of any ammunition being recovered at the scene. As Brian's family told us, they never even found the bullet that Brian had been killed with. Why wasn't the bullet found? We've never understood that. No. Like, never. Uh, you, you, Why didn't you tear that mattress apart? Why didn't no. you pull that floor up? Why didn't you tear the rest of them walls down looking for it, you know? Why? Should have. It feels like it should have been able to be found. You know, the yeah. room was messy, but like, yeah, it, like it's a small room. Eventually, you're gonna find it. Exactly. Yeah. The thirty-eight Smith and Wesson revolver was the only piece of evidence collected from the Bowling's trailer that night. There was one other piece of physical evidence that the police collected later that evening, though. Kane's story had been taken into the police station in Rome for questioning. And while there, Sergeant Battle had swabbed Kane's hands to test for the presence of gunshot residue. Those swabs were sent off to the crime lab in Atlanta for testing. A gunshot residue test, or GSR test, looks for the presence of microscopic particles left behind after a gun has been fired. It can be used to tell if someone has recently fired a weapon. They didn't swab Brian Bowling's hands, though. Sergeant Battle said they never got the chance. Brian had been taken to the hospital before investigators ever arrived, and by the time they saw him in the hospital that night, he'd been cleaned up and taken to the ICU. And that's why, Battle said, no swabs were taken of Brian's hands. 
There was no testing ever done to determine if Brian had fired a gun that night. When Jacinda and I started working on this case, we began by requesting records from every agency in Floyd County that had been involved in some way in the investigation. Yeah. And we're still working on getting files. It's, it's a slow going. Yeah, I don't imagine Floyd County's being, I don't imagine they're being too cooperative on their end, are they? Managed to lose just about everything, it sounds like. Yeah, that's Floyd County. They want to sweep all their dirt under the carpet and just leave it there. The GBI has lost all files, too. Oh, yeah, it doesn't surprise me either. Huh, imagine that. Now, where does that leave us at? We keep pushing for him. When I told Lee that Floyd County had lost just about everything, I wasn't kidding. We couldn't even get the trial transcripts. We were told by the court that those had been lost too. Though eventually, someone in the clerk's office did manage to find them. Well, most of them, anyway. Pretty much the only agency that didn't respond to our records requests by telling us they'd lost everything was the Floyd County Police Department. They were able to find their case file, and they gave us access to it. But that file is thin, very thin. We showed it to Brian's sister, Amanda. Yeah, the whole file's maybe... An That's generous. It was like an yeah, inch. Yeah, it's like that. an inch. This is actually... Actually, this is all of it. Wow. Come to think of it. Yeah, this is that's actually the, whole the entire file right file. here. Wow. So this is, and not that you would have seen the whole file, but yeah. But do you think the documents would have been more than this? Yeah, definitely. In the Floyd County Police file, there are only a handful of documents that date back to the first few weeks after Brian was shot in October of 1996. Most of the documents in the police file have to do with what investigators were looking into seven months after the shooting, in May of 1997, around the time when Kane and Lee were arrested. So we know very little about what investigators were doing in the time before that. But the records we do have show that shortly after Brian's death, investigators had come to believe that he had been killed as a result of gang violence. And as Brian's Aunt Melody remembers, this was the theory the jury heard at Lee's and Kane's trial from prosecutor Steve Cox. I just know Steve, you know, painted the picture, you know, with them being in a little gang, brought up the, the safe theft and how Brian was supposed to testify and, you know, that they were just trying to shut him up and um, felt like that Lee was the ringleader. Lee Clark's father, Glenn, believes that invoking the specter of gang violence is how the prosecutor was able to persuade the jury to convict his son. What were you saying about Steve Cox? Well, he, he put that out there. He put that out there about that gang. You know, we want to send a message to the Floyd County that we're not going to tolerate this kind of stuff, you know? And I think he was putting that on the jury like that and let the jury say, yeah, no, we're not. This is our town. We don't want to get gangs started. Glenn Clark is right. This was the prosecutor's trial strategy. The state's case was that Brian, Kane, and Lee had all been part of a gang called the Freebirds. And the prosecutor was explicit in asking the jury to make their decision in this case a referendum on gang violence. He told them, I hope your verdict will send a message to this community 
that if you feel like the free bird philosophy is behind this homicide, that this community will not tolerate this blatant disregard for life. Investigators in this case believed that Brian had been part of a gang with a strict code of conduct. That's the free bird philosophy the prosecutor was talking about as he explained to the jury. The free bird gang had some very clear rules. You don't narc out a buddy. In other words, you don't rat to police on what a buddy has done. These were very clear rules. Teenage boys, mind you, in Floyd County, but it was going on. And if you did this, you died, pure and simple. Hard to believe, but that was the rule. If the investigators are right, then this is why Lee Clark and Kane Story killed someone who they had called a friend. Brian had broken the gang rules. And so, according to the free bird philosophy, he had to die. Sergeant Dallas Battle and investigator David Stewart actually began investigating Lee and Kane two weeks before Brian was shot. It all started when James Story, Kane's father, reported that there had been a burglary at his home. Someone had stolen a safe containing his life savings. Me, Kane, Joseph Wilkins, and my buddy Pete Jordan, we all stole that safe. Lee Clark does not deny that he and a few of his friends were responsible for the safe theft. One morning, when Kane's parents had been away at work, they'd gone to his trailer, grabbed a safe from his parents' bedroom, and driven off with it. We all jumped off in the car and then went down Rockmore Highway, and I can't even remember what road it was. We were riding down through there and just looking for somewhere to get it out and bust it up, and there's like a creek running down through there, too. Anyways, we took it down there, throwed it out there, and found this big old metal pipe out there, and we took turns with that metal pipe beating the hinges off of it until we got it open. That's how we busted it open. That's how we got the money out. There had been $3,200 in cash inside James Story's safe. And the four boys divvied their loot up between them, each taking $800. Kane and Lee and the other two teenagers involved in the safe theft did not get away with the crime for long, though. Within a week, all four had been arrested and charged with theft by taking. And according to investigators, this is what led to Lee and Kane conspiring to kill Brian. In opening statements at Lee and Kane's trial, Prosecutor Steve Cox explained, Brian Bowling helped and participated in this large theft of money from Kane's story's father, and the police were called in. The motive in this case is clear. These two defendants knew they were charged in a crime and knew that their partner in that crime was cooperating with police. But there's one small problem with the prosecutor's theory about why Brian was killed. Because, you know, Brian wasn't involved in that safe. That's the other thing you I know? was wondering. He didn't actually, <laughs> no. he didn't really know anything. He really. didn't know about it until it was done, until afterwards, you know. So, I mean, he really didn't know nothing, you know. Everyone involved in this case agrees that Brian was not involved in stealing the safe. Everyone, that is, except for the prosecutor. The prosecutor also said in his opening that Brian was involved in the safe theft. He tells the jury, like, now Brian made a mistake. He stole that uh, safe from Josh's parents, but he didn't deserve to die for that. But that's wow, I did not, I did not know that. At trial. Prosecutor Steve Cox told the jury that Brian Bowling had been prosecuted in connection with the safe theft 
but he'd ended up cutting a deal by giving evidence against Lee and Kane. Brian's case was disposed of in juvenile court, and I think the evidence will indicate he was placed on probation. He was sentenced because Brian Bowling, as I said a moment ago, was not guiltless in this. He had participated and did wrong, along with these two defendants and others in stealing a large sum of money from Kane's father. Now, Brian Bowling and his family fortunately wanted to do right and were cooperating with investigator David Stewart and the police. And I anticipate the evidence will indicate these two defendants knew that. This did not happen. Brian Bowling was not charged, arrested, or sentenced in connection with the safe theft. And it's not clear why the prosecutor got this so wrong. He declined to speak with us on the record. But Lee Clark says that this means he and Kane had no motive to kill Brian. They sit there and try to say that uh, we, we all killed uh, Brian because he was going to testify about this safe. That, don't, that theory don't even make no sense at all. Did, did Brian even know about it? No, he didn't know a thing about it. Lee is wrong about that, though. Brian did know some things about the safe theft, because Kane slash Josh had told him. Brian's brother-in-law, Kenneth, had been with Brian when they found out what happened. How, how did you find out about the safe theft? Like, how did that... Josh told us. So did he come over, or...? Yeah, he is staying here, because his daddy come over here, and I'm the one who saved Josh from his own daddy. Yeah, his daddy had a gun on him at that time. I mean, his what, daddy wasn't gun? playing. So Josh comes over here, and you talk to his dad, tell him to... Calm down. Yeah. And then Josh, did he start talking about what happened? He told us that, you know, they was needed money, needed some stuff, whatever, you know, and they had stole the safe from his mom and dad that had, I guess, had a couple thousand dollars in it, had the gun in it, you know. James' story had ended up kicking his son out after finding out about the theft. So Josh had moved in with the Bowlings just for a few days until everything had blown over. You know, we didn't think nothing about it. We thought everything was okay because James and them got the safe back. I think the money was gone, but, you know, the gun was still there. So even though Brian Bowling had not been involved in stealing the safe from Josh's dad, he'd known a lot about it. He'd been getting regular updates from Josh about what was going on, and potentially, he could have given that information to the officers investigating it. Yeah, the whole idea that he, it was payback for narking. Was Brian, well, we don't know because we don't have the files yet, but was Brian even questioned about the safe? One of the officers testifies that Brian did talk to the cops, but it's not clear. There's no written record. We don't know, for, I mean, well, the cops claim that Brian says something that incriminates I guess the other four guys. There are no records that show that Brian talked to the police about the safe theft, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. And Brian's uncle Michael recalls that Brian had in fact talked to at least one police officer who questioned him about the safe theft. And then I know the police come down to talk to Brian about being a witness if he knew anything on it, you know, so. Do you know? Speculations that they thought that he was gonna testify against them is what caused the whole shooting. Do you know if Brian said anything to the police? What, what he told the police about any of this? From what Deborah had said, like I said, he didn't tell me because it's too late now, but that he was not going to testify that he didn't know anything about it. He wasn't with them, didn't know anything about it. 
Kenneth, Brian's brother-in-law, agrees with Brian's uncle that Brian was not planning to testify against his friends. And Kenneth thinks that what he believes was a plan to murder Brian might all have been due to a misunderstanding. I think the reason why they come up with the plan of killing Brian was because of, at that time when Brian had gotten in trouble, there was a detective or probation officer, something coming over here all the time. And it wasn't because of that safe, but that's what Lee and Josh kept thinking, that Brian was snitching. So he has the guy coming to check on him, doing whatever the probation guy does. Right, and they thought Brian was talking, but Brian wasn't talking. Brian didn't say a word about none of that. Hey, everyone. Before we continue with this episode, I want to tell you about another podcast. Have you ever wondered what it feels like to watch your house burn down or be attacked by an alligator or learn that your spouse hired someone to kill you? If you're dying to know, then What Was That Like is the podcast for you. What Was That Like is filled with real stories about the most surreal experiences of people's lives. On the show, host Scott Johnson dives deep with his guests into the unbelievable situations they found themselves in, like animal attacks, plane crashes, winning the prices right, and more. The show brings you tons of completely surreal, completely true stories, all told through the lens of the person who actually experienced it. Check out some of these episodes about wild and gripping stories to gain some insight on what it was like to, say, be a professional bridesmaid or lose a leg in a shark attack. Susan, I think you'd be a really good professional bridesmaid. And you'd be really good at losing a leg in a shark attack. Oh, gee, thanks. (laughs) So if you want to hear some disturbing and inspiring firsthand stories, you need to check out What Was That Like?, Every story is thoroughly researched and fact-checked, so you know even the most bizarre tales are someone's reality. Listen to What Was That Like on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international best-selling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds. Experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Kane's story had been one of Brian's closest friends, and he was close with Brian's family as well. 
so it's not surprising that he was asked to serve as a pallbearer at Brian's funeral. But two days before Brian was buried, Cain was arrested and charged with involuntary manslaughter in connection with Brian's death. And, for obvious reasons, he was no longer welcome to attend. And Cain wasn't the only one who missed the funeral. Lee Clark wasn't there either. I didn't go to Brian's funeral because I know I been hearing little rumors, people saying shit, that the balloons were pissed off and shit, and I know I been hearing rumors about I was hit out in the cemetery when all this junk happened, this and that. And I didn't want to go up there because I didn't feel like it was going to be a good idea. I mean, I wanted to go pay my respects to Brian, but at the same time, I didn't want to go up to no funeral. I didn't want to cause no scene at no funeral, especially not Brian's funeral. So I just stayed away from all of it. There's nothing about it in the police file, but it's clear that investigators must have heard some of the same rumors that Lee was hearing. One week after Brian's death, an article ran in Rome's local paper that quoted an investigator talking about those rumors. Floyd County Police Captain Tommy Shiflett said police are looking into rumors that the shooting may be connected with a recent theft involving Kane's story. The rumors are stirring up the community. Quote, Most of them are outlandish, Shiflett said. The investigation is not closed and will not be closed until all these rumors are answered completely because of the way it has affected the community. End quote. Although Lee stayed away from Brian's funeral, his brother Jamie and Jamie's friends Doug and Don Bray decided to go. Don told us that that's what Brian would have wanted. You know how y'all sit around and you talk? And, uh, if I die, do this for me or whatever. And... Brian had made a comment one time about, well, if I die, smoke one for me and play Freebird to my funeral. And so that's what we did. But we couldn't play Freebird to the funeral because they were, they were, everybody was there. But we did smoke one and on the way there and played it and then put one in the casket with him. Don Bray says that before the funeral, he and his brother would have had no reason to think that they wouldn't be welcome. Brian was our homeboy. We were going regardless if they had a problem or not. I can't remember. But if somebody would have said they didn't want us there, we probably would have went anyway. But you don't remember being told not to go? No, we definitely were not told not to go. Because we, when we got there, we were thinking everything was okay. There were no issues or nothing. But the moment Jamie walked in with us, there was one or two people started going different whispering. Brian's Aunt Melody told us what she remembers happening in the churchyard that day. There was a fight at the funeral. There's kids, young people. And so there was a lot of, um, you know, my sister's friends and Brian's friends. And I mean, the place was packed. And um, matter of fact, there was um, a set of twins, the Bray brothers. I don't know their first names. Doug and Don, I believe. Okay. And so my sister-in-law at the time, Kim, um, after the service, walked by and they were, the Bray brothers were in the parking lot. And um, she said that one of them said, the little son of a bitch deserved what he got. And she stopped and said, what'd you say? And supposedly he said it again and that led into her going into the window my brother going in the window. I kind of got in the window and didn't hit anybody, but I, you know, because they started driving off. Uh, typical redneck <laughs> stuff. 
it's still not clear to us what exactly happened at Brian's funeral. 25 years later, the people involved all remember things slightly different, and accounts vary about who shouted what and who heard it and, and how this all began. But Don Bray and Jamie Clark both say that no one in their group had done anything to provoke the fight. So a lot of people have heard the store told us that the reason the fight started is one of y'all said the SOB got what he deserved. Yeah, that's a lie. So we talked to the friend of uh, Brian's. Yeah. I so said me. you said um, he got what he deserved. That you said about Brian, he, he got, got what, what he, he deserved. deserved. I didn't ever say nothing about Brian. The funeral fight did not come up at Lee and Kane's trial. It wasn't evidence used against them. But this story about one of Brian's supposed friends yelling, the son of a bitch got what he deserved at the funeral, fueled speculation that Brian's death had been some kind of revenge killing, and that the Freebirds had killed Brian because it's what he had deserved for narking. To prove that Brian had been killed because he'd broken gang rules, the state had needed to prove that Kane, Lee, and Brian had all been in a gang together. And in opening statements, Prosecutor Steve Cox promised the jury that he'd be able to do just that. Now you'll hear also some testimony about this gang. This gang is not a figment of the prosecutor's imagination or just coming up with some good idea for a motive. This was a gang called the Freebirds. You're probably thinking this is Rome, Georgia, not Los Angeles or some other big city. Yes, the evidence will indicate there's at least one gang in Rome, Georgia. It's a small, probably loosely organized group of boys called the Freebirds. They had some favorite type of music. Probably you and I wouldn't recognize it, but they had some music and they had an emblem. Maybe they wore colors to school. That I can't say, but they had some of the elements that go along with gangs. It's hard not to notice that the prosecutor seems a little defensive here. No, really, I promise this isn't just all a figment of my imagination, isn't something you usually hear from the prosecution in opening statements. But from talking to people around Rome, you can see why Steve Cox might have had concerns that this whole gang murder theory could be a tough sell. I do remember them having a little gang thing, but it wasn't a legitimate gang, I don't think. Officer Mark Corbin told us that he'd heard there was a gang element to this case, but he scoffed at the idea that they were a true gang. And they was part of this little, supposedly a gang type thing. Back then, we didn't have much gang issues around here. We still don't have like they do in most places, but we have some. Yeah, I don't think Silver Creek is a gang hotspot. It's one of the big stuff. Brian's uncle Michael had a similar impression of what the Freebirds were. You think Brian was in a gang? I'm sure he probably was, yeah. I feel like the word gang carries a lot of implications. Right, yeah. That... yeah well, nobody in this area had heard of gangs. I mean, really had gangs in the area. It was all kind of a Atlanta thing when all this happens. I think it was only four or five of the kids in it, you know. The first time I spoke to Lee Clark, pretty much the only thing I'd known about this case was that it involved two teenage gang members who supposedly murdered another gang member. So it was one of the first things I asked him about. Um, is there a gang called the Freebirds? No, ma'am. Were you in a gang at all? No, ma'am. I've never been in a gang. So not not even like a unofficial, like, kids being no, kids kind of thing? No, ma'am. Never been in a gang. Did they... My who, entire life. 
I hadn't realized before speaking to Lee that there had been any dispute about whether the Freebirds even existed. Jamie Clark, Lee's brother, also told us that there had never been any kind of gang. What were the Freebirds? That was just a little song, came like the same. It'd be more like a band or something in that nature. Kane was trying to get together and that's all that was. I mean, Kane had a little book he'd write songs and stuff in. Were the Freebirds a gang? No, there was no gang, I mean, uh, at all. I mean, it was a group of kids just hanging out here and there. Both Lee and Jamie say that they were not Freebirds. But according to Brian's sister, Brian had claimed membership in the Freebirds. Whatever the Freebirds were, he was one of them. So Brian told you about the Freebirds? I just, you know, said that, you know, it's just all, we're just buddies, you know, just hanging out. So I asked him, I said, are y'all a gang? No, we're just country boys, you know, ain't no gang, we're just friends. So where did the name Freebirds come from? Well, if you guessed it might have been inspired by the classic Southern rock song, you're probably right. Why did you settle on the name Freebirds? I don't know why they did. I don't think any, I, I think somebody just said Probably it. Probably from the song. <clears throat> yeah, because we used to listen to it all the time. According to Don Bray, the Freebirds were a band. Well, kind of anyway. I mean, just something like over the course of weeks and months that names were getting thrown around and what what to call, what we're going to call the band and all that. And it's... It really never, a band never even come to fruition. I think there was one or two of them had guitars, but. I know Kane played. Yeah. Brian was supposed to be the drummer. Brian's the drummer? He didn't have no drums. (laughs) 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 And the same thing with a couple more of them. We all just sit around, just ideas, dreams we would come up with, just hanging out, having fun. It never was no harm or anything in anything. The investigators in this case had a different take, though. They concluded that the Freebirds were something much more sinister than a wannabe garage band. In their handwritten notes from the police file, you can see that Sergeant Dallas Battle and David Stewart had been trying to determine who all had been a member of the Freebirds and what their gang names had been. We asked Lee about what the investigators had written in their file. So, when you did you ever have a gang name... No, there never was a gang. Well, did you all ever, like, pretend to have gang names? No, ma'am. So there's a couple of notes in the police file. It's like a possible name for Freebird gang members. And it's got Kane's story as Devil Man or Devil Eye. (laughs) That's comical. Is that, did he ever get called that? No, ma'am. Brian Bowling, Joker. No. Uh, Pete Hubbard. Italian? Uh, no, that's a little thing we had. We call Pete an Italian sometimes because he looked Italian. So that one's real. You don't remember that one? Yeah. And double deuce? Uh, I, nobody's ever called that. In the police file, the Bray brothers, Don and Doug, are not listed anywhere as suspected gang members. Actually, they're not mentioned in the files at all even though they'd also been friends with Brian and Lee and Kane. Somebody had said something, rumors started flying, 
And next thing you know, people were accusing Kane and Lee of plotting against him. And the police, when they pulled me in and questioned me. They questioned you? Yeah. When? <clears throat> I guess uh, not too long after all of it. They questioned me and my brother. There's no record of them ever talking to you. Don Braid told us that Sergeant Dallas Battle had questioned him in connection with Brian's death. But records of that interview either never existed, or if they did exist, have now been lost. I know he kept bombarding me with questions, trying to trick me up, telling us Freebird was our gang, we were all gang, we all had something to do with it, and we had killed Brian because Brian was going to snitch on all of us for stealing a safe, and I was like, you're so full of shit. And I mean, never once would I ever, and still don't ever think, Brian would, even if that were the case, Brian would never snitch on anybody especially not one of us and which that whole bogus story that he gave me was such crap i was like you're just making this crap up as you go before brian's death did you ever hear anything about him going to the police about it no do you think it's possible he did go to the police about it no i don't what would he gain from it he was on house arrest what if he wanted to get his charges taken no, care of i don't believe that for one second do you think he would have taken a deal like that if it had been offered no i don't you just had to know Brian and all of us back then. I don't think any of us would ever take a deal like that. If Brian had taken a deal, would y'all have been mad? Yeah, probably. Who wouldn't have been mad? Brian's brother-in-law told us that he didn't think he had heard anything about the Freebirds until after Brian's death. But it was rumors of some kind of gang activity that led to the first major investigative effort in the case. So you don't really know when you learned about the Freebirds or when they were? Not me. I don't remember. I, 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 I want to say it was probably after they had dug him back up about the little stuff they had found in the casket and everything. That might be whenever I had learned about it. Because I don't remember Brian ever saying anything about it. About the Freebirds? Yeah. So how did this come up with the exhumation, do you remember? Somebody had said something was put in the casket. I can't remember who was it. Somebody had said something was put in there and it, it needed to be got, you know, we needed to see if we could get it. At some point after Brian's funeral, investigators came to believe that proof that Brian had been murdered had been buried alongside him. In November of 1996, Brian's parents signed a letter requesting that their son's casket be disinterred. The letter reads, I, Deborah Bowling, the mother of Brian, did see a document inside my son's casket, which indicated that my son was affiliated with a gang, and that one of the bylaws of the gang was that any person who ratted on another gang member was subject to penalty of death. According to the letter, Brian had in fact cooperated with the police regarding the safe theft. And it was because of Brian's assistance that four teenagers had been arrested, including Brian's friend Kane Story, who was, quote, believed to be a member of this gang known as the Freebirds. Brian's mother has since passed away. And although she testified at Lee and Kane's trial, she was never asked about the document she saw in Brian's casket. 
So we don't know anything more about what this document looked like or what all was written on it or why she decided to put it back in the casket after she finished reading it. And because so many of the records in this case have now been lost, the only way to learn more about why exactly investigators wanted to exhume Brian's body is to hear from the investigators themselves. We had really hoped to speak to the lead investigator on the case, Sergeant Dallas Battle. But in March of 2021, just a few days before our first trip to Rome, he passed away from cancer. We never got a chance to speak to him. There was another officer, though, who had worked closely with Sergeant Battle on dozens of cases, including this one, Investigator David Stewart. All right. So we just met David Stewart. Nice, nice gentleman. Yeah, he was very friendly, very chatty. Even though we woke him up by accident. Investigator Stewart told us he remembered the bowling case and that he'd be happy to talk to us about it, but he'd need to get approval from Floyd County first. So we made plans to meet up later that week. During our brief discussion on his doorstep, though, Stewart did bring up the exhumation. He said this case was the only time in his career he'd had to do that. He, he said we had to exhume the body because we were looking for lyrics that could be incriminating. And I asked him if it was Bone Thugs and Harmony and Crossroads, and he thought that was it. When we spoke to Officer Corbin, he recalled pretty much the same thing that Investigator David Stewart had told us. I remember they put a letter in the casket of a song. Now, David would know more about that. And David had gotten some information about something being put in his casket, and that's why the body was exhumed. He mentioned, we, so we met with him, talked for a bit, and we made plans to do a longer interview on Wednesday. Okay. Uh, but I remember they found, it was a song title, and it had something to do with the, it, it, was, a, it was a piece of the puzzle. Okay. Uh, somebody had dumped it in the casket. Was it like song lyrics? Song lyrics. Okay. And it had some meaning to do with what happened. There is no police report about the exhumation and no official record of what was found inside the casket. But in the case file, there is a stray sheet of paper with a handwritten list of a dozen or so items. This page is not labeled or dated, but based on the contents, it seems to be a description of what was found in Brian's casket. It has things like a feather made of wood, a dream catcher, a stuffed bear or a stuffed dog, a photo of a car, a hat, a red rose, and a note from Caprice, Brian's girlfriend at the time. And if it was song lyrics that investigators were hoping to find in Brian's casket, then their search was successful. At the very end of that list, there's an entry written, Song, Crossroads. And in the police file, Jacinda and I found four yellowed sheets of lined paper, like the kind you'd find in a school notebook, and written in pencil are the lyrics to The Crossroads by Bone Thugs and Harmony. Brian's Aunt Melody recalls that these lyrics were very much an item of interest to investigators. Um, I gave consent to exhume him, because supposedly there was supposed to be some kind of evidence, and they never really told me what they were looking for. Um, I do know that there was a song, and it's Meet Me at the, Crossro the Crossroads by Bones, Thug, and Harmony. I even had to dig up the words to the song for the investigators, you know, print them out and all Did this mess. Did you fax them over? Yeah. The song just talks about, you know, being shot in the back of the head or I'm going to meet you at the crossroads. It was enough that the investigators did want to know more about the song. 
you know, if it meant something, you know, because it was talking about being shot execution style or something. The lyrics to The Crossroads were not the only thing found in Brian's casket that was of interest to investigators, though. According to Amanda, Brian's family was told that something else was found as well, but they weren't told what it was. All they knew is that something had been found. What did they tell you after the exhumation happened? All I remember is they said that it may or may not help, is all I know. What they found? Yeah. It may or may not help the case. Lee's father, Glenn Clark, remembers that it wasn't until his son's trial that they'd learned what was found when they dug up Brian's grave. So they, they end up exhuming Brian's body. Yeah. What did they find? Well, that picture of that eagle was inside that casket. And they said that's where that was, that, that drawing. Inside of Brian's casket, investigators found a piece of paper with an eagle drawn on it in pencil. Below the eagle is a brief note. It says, Brian, we're going to miss ya. Fly high. With sweet love, the free birds. P.S. See you at the crossroads. We showed the note to Brian's sister, Amanda. Um, this was the other thing they found in the casket. Have you seen that before? I have now. Yeah, well, I remember. Yeah. And apparently this is... The eagle. Carrying a bag of weed. Huh, yeah. Okay. Apparently it's supposed to be anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and smoking. Yeah. yeah, I'm smoking. The eagle that's drawn on the note from Brian's casket is flying high in more ways than one. It's clutching a little baggie of marijuana in its talons and has a joint in its beak. And behind the eagle is a flag with the words, Free Birds, written in bold, blocky letters. This note became the key piece of evidence in the prosecution's case against Lee and Kane. It was the proof, the prosecutor said, that Brian had been murdered for violating the rules of the Free Birds gang. Because Free Birds wasn't the only thing displayed on the Weed Eagle's flag, there's another word there too, written in tiny, all cap script. We showed the drawing to Brian's Uncle Michael. Yes, that was in the casket. Do you remember seeing this flag? Yeah. What's in the corner? Yeah. What's that say there? Have an arcs. Yeah. Yeah. Tucked in the bottom right-hand corner of the Weed Eagle's flag is the word narcs. It has been circled and crossed through, like you might see on a no-smoking sign. The meaning of it seems fairly clear. No narcs. At Lee and Kane's trial, the prosecution argued that the note had been placed in Brian's casket by his killers to send the message that Brian had been murdered for narking on the other members of the Freebirds. Glenn Clark has his own theories, though, about the true significance of the no-nark symbol. And there's in the corner of the flag, it says narks, and it's yep. crossed out. And look at that nark. Look at that nark. You can tell that nark wasn't wrote the same time at Eagle. And, uh, and had that, uh, it put over here, look at it. <laughs> I look here, it don't take no rocket scientist to look at that and tell that rope two different pencils or pen. Somebody else put that narc on there. Who do you think did it? I don't know. When we showed the note to Amanda, she too thought that the no narc symbol didn't match the handwriting in the farewell message below the weed eagle, which was written in an almost flowery cursive handwriting. I mean, the handwriting, yeah. to me, doesn't quite look like the handwriting down here. Mm-mm. 
No. It's different handwritings. To me, that looks like a girl's handwriting. It kind of does, actually. They used this at trial, but neither neither Kane, Josh, nor Lee were at the funeral, so obviously they didn't put it in the casket. Yeah. Yeah, no, they didn't. No. <laughs> so I'd just be curious to know what he added that for and what that... Is there anyone who would have thought of Brian as a narc? I don't know who would have thought that. Not unless that come from Lee, you know. Neither Lee nor Josh slash Kane attended any of the services for Brian. Neither of them could have placed the Weed Eagle note in Brian's casket. And the note isn't signed. There's nothing on the Weed Eagle that identifies who drew it. But at Lee's and Kane's trial, Brian's mother, Deborah Bowling, testified that a boy named Joseph Wilkins had come up to her at the funeral and shown her the Weed Eagle drawing. He'd asked her if it was okay for him to give it to Brian. Brian's mother said she told Joseph that's pretty and given him permission to place it in the casket. Brian's sister didn't see this exchange between Joseph and her mother, but she told us it would have been possible for Joseph Wilkins to have been the one to place the note that investigators found. Yeah. I remember seeing Joseph at the funeral. So he, you, you know, remember seeing him there? Yeah, and he come out to my papa's house whenever they brought Brian's body out there. He also come out there too. Joseph Wilkins was one of the four boys involved in the theft of the safe from Kane's father. Based on the state's theory about what happened in this case, Joseph Wilkins would also have had a reason to be upset with Brian if in fact Brian had given information to the police about the theft. So if Kane and Lee had a motive to kill Brian, Joseph did too. Joseph Wilkins is the guy who drew the free bird drawing with the eagle and the, well, we don't think he did the narcs thing. But no, no one ever questioned him. No one ever questioned the kid who did the drawing. Yeah, the drawing, that's like the proof that this was a conspiracy to kill a, kill a narker. Well, the Dallas Battles theory, I assume, would have been that either Lee or Kane added the narc part onto it. No, right? they weren't at the funeral, so they couldn't have done it. Everyone knows that Lee and Kane didn't put that note in the casket because they weren't there. So, so then would they have assumed that Joseph, that Joseph Wilkins knew about the murder and, and why it was done, but they never, they never questioned him about the case? Nope. That's sort of extraordinary that they're, they're assuming that this, this is a gang and they don't, they don't question. Yeah, it's, a, it's a gang, but they don't interview the gang members. In fact... Following the exhumation of Brian's body and the discovery of the Weed Eagle note, the investigators did not attempt to interview anyone for half a year. Then, in February of 1997, Sergeant Battle and Investigator Stewart got the results of the gunshot residue test back from the crime lab down in Atlanta. So they tested Josh's hands that night, and the test was negative. I've wondered if that negative test result was part of what they... I mean, the cops would have had that and been like, well, it must not have been... It must not have been Josh and, you, yeah. Would Lee have needed to be there? To, he uh, had to physically be there, yeah. That's the way I see it. That's the way I feel about it, you know. I mean, and if Josh didn't, you know, pull that trigger, but he no gunshot residue, then it had to have been Lee, you know. 
The negative gunshot residue test indicated that Kane did not fire a gun on the night Brian was shot and killed. And to investigators, if Kane didn't fire the shot that killed Brian, then that could only mean one thing. Kane must have had an accomplice. Everybody keeps insisting he was there. I guess That's the gunshot residue test. Yeah. Which, which showed that um, Josh had him pull the trigger. That's I think why we can't put any stock on else in case that became yeah. because the test is admissible, right? It's not like a yeah, like a lie detector test that you don't use. It would have been a problem at trial. That's why they had to say that he shot him through the window. Next week on Proof. He asked me about it, asked me what I saw. I said, Cain, I said, that's the devilish something I ever seen in my life. But I said, I'm a Christian. On the front of that road book is crossbones and skull. That ain't nothing but the devil. We're going to go look for me and Charlie, and we'll check in with you later. I call back, and Kenneth's the one that answered the phone, and, and he's hysterical. And I was like, hey, the phone got cut off. I, I just didn't know what happened. And he said, Brian shot himself. Brian shot himself. He put a pillow over his head and shot him. You've heard about the pillow? I think that they've even said to me, sit back and listen. Kids are going to talk. Somebody's going to talk. You've been listening to Proof, a podcast by Red Marble Media. We'll be back next Monday for episode four. Don't forget to send us your questions and comments at proofcrimepod at gmail.com. We'll respond during our bonus episodes, Proof Sidebar, starting soon on Thursdays. Kevin Fitzpatrick is our executive producer. Our logo was designed by Drew Hosuski, and our theme music is by Ramiro Marquez. Audio production for this episode is by Michael Ulatowski. Our social media manager is Skylar Park. Thank you to our sponsors for making it possible for us to come back week after week. Follow us everywhere with the handle at ProofCrimePod and on our website, ProofCrimePod.com. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening.